Once again, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Mark. We have now come to Mark chapter 10. And we'll be looking at Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began to question him, began questioning him again about this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge Again, our thankfulness for your word, for it is through your word that we have light, that we might know how to live and how to thrive in the creation that you have placed us in. And it's also by your word that we live for every word of your mouth is like food to us. It is by your word that we are strengthened and nourished spiritually. It's by your word that we have hope and comfort and encouragement. And so I particularly pray that you would both give clarity and understanding and insight regarding your perspective of your of divorce and marriage. And that through your word you would also give encouragement that you would set our minds on a trajectory that would lead to thriving marriages that would please you. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So, a difficult text, a difficult topic on divorce. And, and I, I want to begin by simply mentioning that this is a sermon for all of us. It's not just one for those who have experienced divorce. And I know many of you have experienced divorce personally. And many others have had parents who have been divorced, siblings that have been divorced, extended family members who have been divorced, and friends. But I also say this is a sermon for all of us, not just because most of us have touch points with divorce, but because within this text, Jesus Jesus illuminates more than just his perspective on divorce. He actually gives us great insight to understand his purpose and design for marriage. 
And when we understand God's design for marriage, it not only has massive implications for how we understand divorce, but also on how we understand God and his nature and his design and his desire for us. The passage I've broken up into three sections for our understanding. In verses one through two, the Pharisees examine Jesus. They put him to the test. And then in verses three through nine, Jesus explains his answer to their question regarding divorce. And then in verses 10 through 12, Jesus further explains his position on divorce to the disciples because they also remain confused. So let's look at the first point, the Pharisees examination of Jesus in verses one through two. In these verses, we see that Jesus is continuing on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's going to Jerusalem through Galilee, crowds begin to gather around him and they begin to listen to him and ask questions and and to hear from him his position on various things. And as he's going along, some Pharisees join this band of learners But instead of simply wanting to learn from him, we see that these Pharisees ask Jesus this question because they want to test him. So this is like the student who goes to class not to learn, but simply because he wants to stump the professor or undermine the instructor some way to counter what might be explained by the teacher. And so the Pharisees throw at him what they consider to be one of those great theological enigmas. And they believe that wherever Jesus lands, he's going to upset somebody. Because either he's going to clearly undermine God's plan for marriage, as explained in Genesis 1 and 2, or he's going to disagree with Moses in Deuteronomy 24. And so... They ask him this question to try and stump him. Now, the the problem with the Pharisees question is not the question itself about divorce. My guess is probably all of us have wrestled with this issue. God, what is your opinion regarding divorce? Because either people have asked us this or we ourselves have wrestled with it, given all that. God explains in his word regarding marriage and, 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 and given all the different views within the church that have come and gone over the centuries. So it's legitimate to ask the question if divorce is lawful or not. The problem isn't the question. The problem here is the motive. Very clearly, the reason the Pharisees ask this question is because they want to put a stumbling block in his way. They are doing exactly what Jesus told his disciples not to do in the previous passage. When Jesus rebuked John for wanting to to rebuke the man who was casting out a demon, but not following them. See, they see Jesus as a competitor to their own spiritual authority. And just as they found their own authority in their law keeping... They think that they can use the law to undermine Jesus' authority. And the deeper issue with the Pharisees that we too need to be aware of is their use and understanding of the law. We get great insight to how they understood the law by 
the very question that they ask. See, they're using the law as a means of self-advancement, not as a means of knowing God. They're not asking this question because they want to know God's will. They're using the law as a tool for themselves to undermine somebody else and to assert their own authority. And we'll see this same theme of abusing the law highlighted again next week when Jesus has a discussion with the rich young ruler, a passage we're probably all familiar with. That man loved law-keeping because keeping the law allowed him to justify his own idol of money. And when Jesus confronts that idol, the man walks away from him discouraged. The Pharisees' love of the law isn't because they love God or really care about his design for marriage. For them, this is just a philosophical or legal question. It's not a question of worship. And we need to recognize, we need to make sure we don't follow in that same trajectory. That we don't get so caught up in wrestling through God's position on various topics that it's no longer about knowing God and discerning how we might worship him, but it's about being right. It's about winning an argument. It's about asserting our own authority. We do want to have good doctrine. We do want to get the Bible right. But the Bible is not a tool to elevate ourselves. It's a tool so that we might know and love and serve our God. Well, this, this, this discussion on divorce was such a hot topic in Jesus' day because there had in that time, arisen really two schools of thought in Judaism. They are known as the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And, and both schools came to different positions regarding uh, the divorce, whether it was lawful or not. And, it, and their discussion centered on their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. So I've placed the passage before you on the screen. You can also look at it in your Bible. Particularly 24 verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Moses is explaining what should happen in such a case. And the debate over whether divorce was lawful or not, centers on that word indecency in verse 1. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. What does indecency mean? That was what the debate was over. The conservative school of Shammai understood that this was clearly a reference to adultery. And I'm certain they were right. And therefore they taught that it should only be granted, divorce should only be granted in cases of adultery alone. But the other school of Hillel, the more liberal and also popular school in Judaism at that time, believed that indecency just means anything that the husband was disappointed with. Any deficiency that a husband found in his wife. So that would include finding another woman who was prettier than his wife, or even if she bakes biscuits for breakfast and burns them. Either case would be grounds for divorce, according to the school of Hillel. 
I should also say this. Both schools taught that whatever, that if, if, if there was sufficient grounds for adultery, then remarriage would also be acceptable in accordance with those grounds. So if adultery did take place, the spouse who had been sinned against could still remarry after divorce. Or if the school of Hillel, if the biscuits were burned, it was granted adultery, the spouse could remarry. So remarriage was acceptable as long as there was a legal divorce. The only exception to this were priests. Because in Leviticus 21, God explicitly states no priest can marry a divorcee. So this is where Judaism was on this issue of divorce and remarriage. And so the Pharisees' questions really aimed at, Jesus, where do you land? Do you agree with the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel? Well, Jesus explains his position in verses 3 through 9. Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? His answer begins very wisely with a question. He draws their mind, as we all should when such questions come back, not with just, hey, this is what I think, this is my opinion. He draws their mind back to the Word of God. What did God command you? What, what does the Word of God say? The Pharisees respond by pointing out that Moses did permit divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And it's also, it's, it's noteworthy to see, to look at the verbiage in verse 24 1. Technically, it doesn't give permission. It only acknowledges that such a situation could arise. That's worth our attention, I think. But in stipulating that this in the law, it does imply that God did allow for divorce under the Mosaic law. And this, of course, is how the Jews interpreted it. However, Jesus, after noting this, continues with two contingency clauses in verses 5 and 6 that we, under the New Covenant, need to pay particular attention to. The first contingency indicated is indicated by the preposition but. But this provision was only granted because of sin. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The word hardness just means calloused. So think not wearing shoes, traversing over asphalt and rocks and dirt over time. Your your feet grow hardened calluses. So you no longer are sensitive to the pain of what you might step on. He's saying you had calloused Hearts, You were no longer sensitive to God's will. You were not seeking. God knew that you, there would be times when you would be so hard, you would no longer seek God's will for marriage. Instead, you would insist on doing your own. And to, prov- to protect a wronged party, he allowed this provision to exist. So Jesus is saying, the first condemned, yes, That is what the law says. But the reason he gave you that contingency was not because he was in favor of divorce. It was because of your sin. And the same hardness of heart is being demonstrated in the Pharisees question. They're not asking about God's will for marriage. They're looking to see what can we get away with? 
Moreover, Jesus' second but in verse 6 really gets to the heart of the issue as he draws our attention back to God's original design. And what he does is he quotes Genesis chapter 2 to remind them of what God's plan and will for marriage was. But from the beginning of creation, before sin was in the world, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So though no longer two, they are one flesh. Incidentally, in citing Genesis 2, Jesus obliterates, obliterates any notion that there could be any such thing as homosexual marriage. He also destroys any idea that there is more than two genders. God is binary in his conception of gender, very clearly. And when that question comes up in family or at work, just go right back here to Mark chapter 10. If somebody doesn't like that, they don't like what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says, if you are ashamed of my words, I will be ashamed of you. So for anybody that professes to be a believer and wants to promote homosexuality or transgenderism or any of that junk that's floating around in our culture, they have to deal with Jesus and his clear position on the issue. Jesus' design for marriage was that one man and one woman would unite. And, and, and he designed it that way in order that they might experience the closest, most intimate bond of unity that can ever be experienced this side of heaven. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it says this. You know this well, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. After he says that, he then says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The creation of man, the creation of man being male and female was done in order that man might be in the likeness of the Trinity. And he created them that they might become one, male and female, becoming one flesh, that they too might experience the same kind of unity that the Trinity has experienced from eternity past. God is one in delighting in the pleasure that the Trinity has had in eternity past. He wants humans to have some semblance of that unity. Now, God can't make man three in one like he is. The Trinity is three persons, one essence. Experience amazing unity. They're not divided in anything, completely in line with their will. God couldn't make man three in one, but God could make two to be one flesh. And that's why he created marriage. And inciting the origins of marriage, Jesus is reminding us that God designed marriage so that man and woman could find pleasure in that unity. That's the aim of marriage. It's unity. In fact, God's declaration that it was not good for man to be alone, which is what brought about the creation of woman. His creation of woman from man's rib, from his side. Woman's functional identity is to be a suitable helper to the man. As well as Christ's declaration here, what God has brought together, let no man separate. All these point to the fact that marriage was designed for unity. That's the purpose. 
Marriage wasn't designed just for sex. It's Sex was a means to this greater pleasure, this greater end of experiencing intimate unity of heart, of mind, of soul, and of flesh. And the surrounding context of Genesis 2 makes it clear that the primary point of marriage is that man and wife would function as a unit. They are to cease pursuing life as individuals. They're going to leave father and mother. And now they're to pursue life with unified aims. And what that mean is that every major life decision, all their aims, all their ambitions, all their pursuits should be done together. It's not two people living, compromising with one another. Sure, I'll do this. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. Let's just tolerate one another and try to survive together and just make it through. That's junk. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want tolerance. God wants unity. That you want the same things, that you love the same things, that you're going the same direction, you're helping one another pursue God's will for your life. Of course, the question comes up, well, how can such unity in marriage be accomplished? How can a man and woman who are so different, have such different needs, actually come to unity? We're greatly helped in this in just even recognizing where we're at in Mark. This is very interesting how Mark brings up this, this issue of divorce in the context of his discussion about what it really means to follow Christ. We'll get to that in a second. The answer to the question, though, is their aims are no longer about pursuing their own wills and their own desires, but living for the Lord. They no longer live for themselves. Instead, they take up their cross and they follow Christ, submitting to Him. All the decisions they make need to flow from that singular aim. And if spouses are insistent on clinging to their own ambitions, their own wills, their own desires, their own individualism, their marriage will always be dysfunctional. As long as we're thinking about what's in it for me, what do I want? We are the problem for why our marriage is not unified. So it's not how do I get my husband to finally do what I want him to do? Or how do I get my wife to finally let me do what I want to do? It's like, no, it's no. What is it that God's calling me to be? And how do I help my wife or my husband accomplish that same aim? We've died to ourselves and now we live for him. We've taken up our cross. And we're seeking to be like Christ. And notice that Jesus' explanation in verse 8 focuses on this one flesh union. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Jesus cites Genesis 2, but then he gives this explanation. That's where our focus needs to be drawn. Jesus' answer is about the reason... God's not in favor of divorce. The reason I'm not supporting divorce is because of this. They're no longer two. They're one. He's not in favor of divorce because it's doing the very opposite of what God designed marriage to be. God wanted to bring about this, the most incredible union that could ever be experienced. And divorce kills it, eliminates any possibility for that union to ever be reached 
As long as they remain married, even, even when sin occurs, they can still pursue unity through grace. But once divorce happens, it's done. It's dead. Unity can never be accomplished. His design for marriage is crushed. And so Jesus doubly emphasizes this point in verse 9. Stating his explicit view of divorce. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So his point being is, yes, God, even if God did allow for divorce under the Mosaic Covenant, this was never his will. There are many stipulations in the Mosaic Law that God allows for that weren't necessarily what he wanted. Because of the hardness of heart. A good example of that is he has laws regarding slavery. Does that mean that God is in favor of slavery? He thinks it's a good thing? No. But he permitted laws to create sin being greatly exacerbated. So God conceded that divorce would take place because of the hardness of men's hearts, but that does not ever mean he was in favor. He thought divorce was ever a good thing. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, God explicitly declares that he hates divorce. He hates it. And he hates it because it corrupts the union that was explicitly designed for that purpose. And for the record, this is also why God is opposed to every kind of form of sexual immorality. Whether it's homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, premarital sex. It's not because God is a prude. It's not because he doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves. It's not because God is afraid of people having just too much pleasure. God designed sex. God made sex to be pleasurable. God's not opposed to sexual immorality because he wants... Because he wants to minimize our pleasure, he's opposed to it because he wants to maximize our pleasure. He wants to maximize our pleasure in the unity that would result in that one flesh union. Sexual immorality in all of its forms are all corruptions to his design and hindrance, hindrances to that unity finally being accomplished. So God's not trying to quench our pleasure he's trying to maximize it by putting parameters around it so that marriage would function according to his design sexual immorality hinders that purpose and when we focus too much on legal standards like the pharisees trying to ask questions well what can i get away with what how far is too far What we're doing is we're missing the whole point of what God's design is. And this was the case with the Jews. It was also the case with the disciples. That's why they need a follow-up instruction. They need a follow-up explanation. And Jesus explains to the disciples in his position further in verses 10 through 12. It says, in the house the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. Now, Jesus' statement here is troubling to the disciples 
Because it seems like he's countering Moses. Why would Jesus prohibit divorce if Moses allowed it? That's the question that disciples are asking. Again, Jesus' answer centers again on the design for marriage and the nature of this one flesh union. Sex with more than one person in the course of a lifetime creates adultery and it perverts God's design unless that person was widowed. When a divorce takes place, Jesus says, and then as a consequence of that divorce, a spouse gets remarried, that spouse is committed adultery. He's teaching that there's a spiritual bond that takes place in the, in the sexual union that goes beyond the legal bond of marriage. There's a bond that goes beyond the legal bond. That is, the, there's a unity that continues even after the legal marriage is destroyed. So ending a marriage does not end that one flesh union. Once that union has been created, it can never be divided until death. Now that we saw that in Romans 7, 1 through 3 earlier. Again, notice Mark's placement of the discussion on divorce and how it fits with the previous passage of his rebuke of John. Again, John, the point of Jesus' rebuke in the previous passage is that a Christian should never do anything that would lead to, uh, that would cause another person to stumble. You never want to be a stumbling block. And Jesus' explanation of what takes place in divorce in verses 10 through 12 is he's saying divorce creates a stumbling block to your spouse. And recall that Jesus said it would be better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to be a stumbling block for another person. A disciple would never want to do anything that would cause another person to fall into sin. This is Jesus' perspective on divorce. And this is how this discussion of divorce fits into the larger narrative of Mark. See, again, Jesus has been telling his disciples what it means to follow after him. He's heading to the cross. And as he's heading to the cross, he reminds them this is where he's going. And then he explains to them, this is what... A a life of following me looks like you don't live for yourself. You die to yourself if you want to follow me. And Jesus just recently taught that if you get this, you will recognize that greatness is going to be demonstrated in lowly service to other people. The lowest in society. You're going to recognize that the threat to you is not somebody else, but it's your own sin. It's your own sin that's the greatest threat to the work of Christ. And you also recognize that God's plan is always for unity. It's not division. And so the implications really for the disciples go beyond just their marriages. The implications here really go beyond just marriage. They go beyond God's design for everything. God's design for the body of Christ. God doesn't want division. He wants unity. How does that unity happen? Death to self and submission to his word. That's how unity happens. 
It's not by forcing people to obey you. It's not by just ignoring your own desires. It's aligning your desires with God's and encouraging others to align their desires with God's as well. And so when a person has decided to follow Christ, their interest is no longer in what they want, what's in their best interest. It's how they can best honor the Lord. Again, unlike the Pharisees, they're not concerned with what, what's permissible, what they can get away with. What does the law say? As much as what they want to know is God's heart behind the law. What, is, what does this law teach me about God's desires, God's loves, God's will? So in conclusion, we can conclude these things. First of all, divorce was permissible under the Mosaic law. But there's no indication in the, t- in the Word of God that it was ever something God was in favor of. And I think that's Jesus' primary point in the first thing that he mentioned. Secondly, those Jews who received a permissible divorce could get remarried under the Mosaic Law. So remarriage was acceptable with a permissible divorce under the Mosaic Law. Another third conclusion. For those who've chosen to follow Christ... Divorce is not an option. For those who have chosen to follow Christ, divorce is not an option. And again, Jesus makes this explicit when he says, But God has joined together, let no man separate. So, maybe I think the most important, The fourth point, maybe the most important thing for us to walk away with isn't what's God's view of divorce as much as it is what's God's view for marriage. What God's will is for marriage is that both spouses joyfully pursue unity through dying to themselves and submitting their will to God's. Okay, so it brings up this question, of course. Well, what is God's will then if I've already gotten divorce? Well, I think it it means you grieve it and you repent. And let me clarify what I mean by repentance. Repentance means that we think differently about sin. Metanoia. There's a change in thinking primarily. And of course, it's that change in thinking that leads to a change in behavior. But repentance really is to get our convictions and emotions and affections in line with God's. And so repentance about divorce would mean thinking differently about divorce and therefore committing yourself to never pursuing divorce ever again. And so repentance, if you've already gotten remarried, means embracing God's design for your current marriage and never considering divorce ever again. And instead, in your current marriage, commit to die to yourself And pursue unity as God has designed it. If you're a husband, commit to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Who died for her and gave himself up for her. If you're a woman, it's by submitting yourself to your husband's leadership. And so if you've been divorced and are now remarried, I want to say this. You still have all the hope the scripture affords. Immorality does not make unity impossible. 
But it does make it more challenging. And you can still experience the unity God designs for your present marriage. And you should. And you should pursue it with all your heart. How do I know that? Because if you're a believer, God has not left you alone in your fight against sin. Or even in the fight against the consequences of sin. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4, He says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And even if you're currently married to an unbeliever, you still have hope. 1 Peter 3.1, in speaking to wives, he says, Wives, be subject to your home husbands, so even if they, some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. What God is saying is, even if your husband, and I think by logic, your wife is unmarried, isn't following the Lord, isn't submitting themselves to God's will, there's still hope for your marriage as you continue to pursue God's will. There's still hope for their salvation. And if they get saved, the possibilities of unity continue to be immense. So there is all the hope in the world, regardless of whatever your sexual past has been, regardless of whatever, regardless of whatever your marital history has been, if you are willing to commit yourself to pursue unity by dying to yourself and submitting to God's word, you can have the most unified marriage possible in the world. It may be hard, But you have all the power of God on your side and his will. God wants you to have unified marriages. That's his design. And he wants you to fully experience his design for marriage in all of its fullness of joy. Again, many people think that the greatest pleasure in marriage is sex. It's not. It's unity. Sex is just a supporting role. And I think the reason we often think this is because of the common assumption that true pleasure is going to be found in self-gratification. But actually what the Bible teaches is the most exquisite pleasures are actually found in unity, particularly in being united with God in His will. And I think the reason we believe the opposite is because unity is so hard to come by. It's it's actually, it's quite rare because we are so selfish and we like to defend our selfishness. We like to justify our selfishness. When we're doing that, all we're doing is we're hindering unity. And in fact, and when we're hindering unity, we're hindering joy. We're hindering pleasure. Unity is hard to come by, but physical gratification isn't. It's rather easy. Moreover, pleasure is immediate and it can be so acute. But unity, it takes time and it takes work and it takes death to self. Physical pleasure is only hindered by opportunity. But the pleasure of unity is threatened every time that we're selfish. Every time. So I don't think we think about the pleasure afforded in unity because it's so hard. But this is the ultimate aim of marriage. This is where true pleasure really is found in marriage. It reminds one of C.S. Lewis's quote. 
And you've heard it a million times, but I'm going to repeat it to you because it's so true. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, the reason we don't fully delight in our marriages is because we're far too easily pleased with self-gratification. If you want real pleasure in your marriage, die to yourself and submit to God's will. Again, sex was a means to an end, and that end was not pleasure. Primarily. The end for sex is unity. The two shall become one flesh. And that's why God gave pleasure to that act. It's to be a means to the greater end of unity. And there's immense joy experience in unity. And, and we've all experienced it. Consider, consider the favorite meal that you have ever had. My guess is what made that meal so special wasn't the physical gratification of the flavor and taste of the food. Though I'm sure that was part of it. But probably what made that meal particularly special was who you were eating that meal with. And you were sharing the joy of that pleasure with another person. You probably had far more joy in the friendship than in the food, even if the food was amazing. Or just consider the, the most memorable event in your life. Where you have the, just the, the, the fondest memories. Every time you think about that place, that time, that event, you just want to smile. My guess is that you were sharing that experience with another person. And this is why whenever we experience something just delightful, we want to talk about it with other people. We want them to just get a taste of the joy and the pleasure we had in that experience. Even if something stupid like watching the Beavers win a football game. Finally. We want to go through every play and explain what happened. Because the person didn't see it and we want them to just get a taste, a bit of the pleasure we experience. And that's on something trivial, but how much more when it's something that's like, it's immense, like the birth of a child or a wedding. Or having your greatest dreams realized. And this is why corporate worship is frequently more fulfilling than a quiet time. I've had some really good personal times in the word but i have had indescribable pleasure and joy in worshiping with this congregation in song singing the same things and knowing my brothers and sisters here believe and love the same things i love there's something powerful in singing with united heart and mind the same rich theological truths with fellow believers, something much greater than that than just singing alone in the car. And yes, I sing in the car. I admit it. But there's something far greater than just singing with brothers and sisters. Marriage was particularly designed to give people a taste of the unity that the Trinity experiences. 
That's why he gave it. And, and corporate worship is just another flavor of that. It's why he has the body of Christ. We're saved into a body, not just as individuals. And this unity that God desires in marriage, again, isn't, isn't created just by sex alone. That helps, but the unity that is accomplished as couples die to their, themselves, as they seek to submit themselves to God's word and pursue it, God's will with all their lives. And when you have all three, three things present in a marriage, physical union, submission to God's will and death to self, there now exists the most, the, the makings for the most beautiful and intimate union that can ever be imagined. That's what God wants for us. That's why he doesn't like divorce because he wants not to minimize our pleasure. He wants to maximize it. Let's pray.